So the first reading is Isaiah 25, 1 to 8, on page 709. Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. For in perfect faithfulness, you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against the wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Second reading is from Luke 14, 1 to 14, on page 1047. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Please do take a seat. And uh, can I add my welcome to David's at the beginning. If you've not met, my name's Andy. I'm not normally here, although I was here about seven, eight years ago or before that. Uh, it's great to have you uh, here this morning, particularly if you're new to St. John's. It's lovely to see you. Um, you may have met my children at the beginning. It's my daughter who sort of destroyed the, or nearly smashed her head on the table during uh, Corinne's kids earlier on. 
And uh, my son somehow knows what an Egyptian goose is. I, I don't know where he got that information from. Um, please keep your Bibles open at Luke 14. That's on page 1047. Uh, page 1047. I, it's wonderful you're going through Luke's Gospel. Our, our church in Balham is also going through Luke's Gospel. And we're, we're just a couple of weeks ahead of you. And um, so this, is, this was an easy win for me to say yes when Tom asked me to come and preach. Um, so please, uh, please do... Uh, Keep that open, and there should be a little pink handout for your sort of person who likes to take notes. Shall I pray for God's help? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you promised to always speak to us. When we open your word, when we hear it preached, we hear the voice of your spirit. So Father, as you speak now, please give us ears to hear and hearts that are willing to obey. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, hands up if you recognize this TV show. Uh, it's called Come Dine With Me. Now we know who watches daytime television. television that's good. Um, if you've not seen this uh, TV show, it basically, I think it's on Channel 4. The premise of it is they um, record five random strangers um, having, taking turns to, to host meals for one another. And, and what makes this show interesting isn't so much the food. It's not really about the food. Often the food's terrible. What makes this show interesting is the producers choose deliberately the most catastrophic cocktail of personalities to, have, uh, to eat together. So, so they would choose you know, the, the poshest Tory they could find uh, with, with an ardent Marxist and, and watch it explode. Or, or they find an, an abattoir owner with a, with a vegan campaigner and watch it all erupt. And you're there with your popcorn, and it's brilliant. It's always a total disaster. Fantastic TV. And uh, often people get very, very angry uh, in the show. Well, our passage today is Luke's very own version of Come Dine With Me. It's got to go down as one of the most awkward dinner parties in all of recorded human history. Uh, the meal is being hosted by some of Israel's top religious leaders. The Pharisees were wealthy, they were powerful, they were upright, they were respected. They're, they're the sort of guys you, you want to go into business with. They're the sort of men you want your daughter to one day grow up and marry. And so here they are, they're eating with Jesus, and we're thinking, well, of course, they're eating with Jesus. The sort of guys, you know, Jesus would want to hang around with, surely. But with a few well-placed questions and parables, Jesus manages to utterly dismantle their charade. Jesus might be eating with them now, but the question is, will Jesus be eating with them in the kingdom of God? Will they be eating with Jesus at that heavenly banquet, which we heard in our first reading from Isaiah 25? Will they be at that feast and I think the reason we're given this passage is not so much that we might beware Pharisees and other churches elsewhere. I think we're given this so that we might beware a Pharisee's heart in here. See, the thing which Jesus keeps on pointing out throughout this entire dinner party is this, and you see it at the top of your, your service sheets as well. A social self-righteousness indicates spiritual self righteousness. In other words, the way that we relate to others secretly reveals the basis upon which we think God relates to 
us. Now, I'm sure if we took a straw poll as you walked into St. John's this morning, and we asked you on the door um, that this question, do you deserve your invitation to the kingdom of God? Do you deserve it? Have you merited it? I'm sure nearly all of you would have answered the correct way. You would have said, no, I'm a sinner. I am saved by grace alone. We know the right theological answer, don't we? But your heart's true answer to that question is not so much revealed in your theology, but in who you are willing to invite into your life, into your homes, into your church. I think there are three ways self-righteousness reveals itself in this passage. And the first is when we are more concerned with convenience than compassion. So would you look down at verse 1? Let's uh, pick up the story, verse 1, in your Bibles. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering with abnormal swelling of his body. Now, as you know, if you've been following uh, through Luke so far, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And it seems whenever he arrives at a new town, people like to host him for dinner. And so it's little surprise that the local religious leaders want to get in on the action with Jesus. But Luke alerts us here in verse 1 that this isn't a kindly invitation to a road-weary traveler. No, this is a trap. Since chapter 6, the Pharisees have been determined to catch Jesus, uh, looking for any error, any weakness, anything to expose him before the people. Which is probably why this man with abnormal swellings was also invited to the dinner party. Most likely, this man was suffering from edema. Now, I'm, I'm aware I'm speaking to a lot of medics here. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Edema? Yes. Got it right. Here is edema. Sorry, it's not a, a pretty picture, is it? Edema is when, you, when your limbs painfully swell up with excess fluid, excess water. Apparently, edema is not a disease in and of itself, but, but rather a symptom of, of, of a heart disease, heart problem. Medics nod, nod. Yes, great. I'm, I'm getting that right. But, but it's even worse than that, because according to Israel's law, Edema also made you ritually unclean. That meant you couldn't worship God at the temple. You couldn't go to have your sins forgiven through sacrifice. So it kind of begs the question, doesn't it? Why on earth would these prominent Pharisees, people who above everyone were concerned for ritual purity, why would they invite someone along who embodies ritual impurity? Most likely, he's been invited along because they're hoping against hope that Jesus would heal the man and heal the man on the Sabbath day. They're hoping Jesus would do work on the day when Israel were commanded not to do work. And so here, here is the Pharisees' chance to expose Jesus as a lawbreaker in front of everyone in town. But Jesus, he's not an idiot, is he? Jesus smells the trap a mile away. 
So he bats the question back to them. Look at verse 3. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. What Jesus does here is simply extraordinary. Here is this poor man. He is swollen in body, shunned by the people, having no access to God even. And Jesus walks up and takes hold of him, literally grabs him, holds him like that. His swellings are gone. His uncleanness is made clean. And now he's restored to God once more. You see, I hope you get this. By showing this man compassion, Jesus shows that he has both the power and the desire to save us, to save people like me and like you. He can cleanse you from your sin. He can bring you back into God's presence, however distant or far away you might feel this morning. He, He even promises to offer you a new body in the new creation, maybe you're, you're feeling your body's getting older, it's creaking and it's swelling up in ways you wouldn't want it to, but Jesus promises a new body for all those who trust in him one day. But here's the thing, by grabbing hold of this man, Jesus falls straight into the Pharisees' trap. You know, I, I imagine they're sort of rubbing their hands going, <laughs> you know, doing a sort of an evil cackle. I, I'm imagining this, it's not in the Bible. They're thinking, brilliant! Brilliant, uh, Jesus' demonstration of flagrant disregard for the law. And once again, the people will know that we are the true insiders. And that Jesus, he's the pretender. Of course they would have reasoned. Of course, we would have loved to have healed this man. We would have loved to have helped him. But alas, oh, alas, it's the Sabbath day and we're not allowed to do work. Oh, what a shame. But Jesus' next question exposes their hypocrisy. Verse 5. Then he asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well, literally an abyss, on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. So picture the scene for me, if you would. Phineas the Pharisee, has, uh, it's Saturday, he's just uh, locked up the synagogue um, after a wonderful Saturday service, and the, the, the wife and the kids, they, they've, they've run home before him, um, and, you know, just so he can sort of finish up business at the synagogue. But, but as he's walking back home and he's walking through his garden, he hears cries from the bottom of the garden. What's that noise? And he runs there and discovers his son, little Timmy, has fallen down the well. What does Phineas the Pharisee do? Help, help, cries Timmy. What does Phineas shout out? Hold on, Timmy, hold on. There's only nine more hours till the end of Sabbath day. Do you think you're going to tread water for that time? You can do it, Timmy, you can do it. I'd love to help you, but alas, it's the Sabbath. Can't work. Sorry, Timmy, help, Dad, help. Keep swimming. Is that what he says? No. Of course not. 
immediately he would get a rope and haul his son out of the well. Jesus' question here utterly silences the Pharisees. It seems they they will happily relax their own religious code when it's in their own interest to do so. When it's their own son drowning in the waters. Or or their own livelihood, the ox drowning in the waters. And yet when they come across a man in their living room, in their dining room, in desperate need of compassion, a man drowning in his own waters, a man down a different sort of spiritual abyss, well, suddenly their religious code comes conveniently rigid, preventing any involvement whatsoever. I wonder if you see anything of yourself here. I know I do. See, when it comes to our own friends and our own family, we can be extraordinarily compassionate, can't we? We often go the extra mile and we carve out time. We give whatever it costs because they're they're our friends, they're our family. Of course we do that. But then when we're presented an opportunity to show compassion to others, perhaps someone just outside that inner circle, well, suddenly it becomes an inconvenience. And suddenly we find a whole bunch of excuses. Tragically, like the Pharisees, sometimes we even use our theology to justify a lack of compassion. And Bible-believing churches like like this one and like the one I serve in, in Balaam, uh, we're we're right to emphasize and keep emphasizing that what people need most is the gospel. They need saving. They they need to believe and trust in Jesus. That's what they need most. But sadly, sometimes you you hear it argued that acts of mercy shown by churches to others is a distraction away from gospel proclamation. And sometimes churches wear it as a badge of honor that they don't do any acts, uh, mercy ministries or anything like that, because we only do gospel and proclamation here. And it's worn as a badge of honor. And they say, well, it's because mercy ministries, they can be distracting from gospel proclamation. And and that's, that's true. That can happen. It can happen. But Jesus' ministry shows us that proclamation and compassion go hand in hand. It's not either or, it's both and. And often, in my experience, often it's our practical love for people which gives the gospel credibility. People like this poor man with a demon, they think, well, if these people love me, even though I've got nothing to offer, well, maybe God loves me, even though I've got nothing to offer. I guess in the same way that edema is a symptom of a deeper heart problem, I think a lack of compassion and empathy is also a symptom of a deeper spiritual problem. Social self-righteousness often reveals spiritual self-righteousness. Now, I find this quite convicting, and of course, I'm, I'm, we're all finite, aren't we? As individuals, we're, we are finite. We have limited time, we have limited energy, limited resources, 
And that's true of individuals. It's true of churches, isn't it? I'm sure there's loads of things St. John's would love to do. If only we had the people to do this. If only we had the money to do that. You think there's, there's often good reasons why we're not doing everything we possibly could. And we shouldn't beat ourselves up about that necessarily. So rather than feeling guilty about what we can't do, well, let's consider what we can do. Let's consider who we can show compassion and mercy to. Let's consider who is within our reach. Because this man with the demons, he was within the orbit of the Pharisees. They'd, they'd invited him to dinner. He was within their reach, yet they didn't show him compassion. So can I ask, who is in your orbit? Who is in your reach? Perhaps it's someone in your home group who's really struggling and, and they just need a bit of time. Well, could you give them that time? Or perhaps it's an elderly neighbor who's lonely and, and needs a friend. Uh, perhaps it's a single parent who needs help with their children once in a while and maybe you could babysit to give them a night out. Or maybe you can int introduce them to, to many of the kids' work here, the, the activities you have running here. That'd be a great thing to do. Um, Tom told me recently about something you, you're starting up called the Grace Advocacy. Lots of people nodding. Good. That sounds like a brilliant idea. Because notice there's lots of people who, who don't have Christian friends, who don't have Christian neighbors, who, who are outside the usual orbit of the people who would normally just, ooh, a pretty building, I'll come and walk in. They need the gospel too. And of course, Grace Advocacy, it's not going to work unless people are willing to not just give their money, but give their time to help there. Could you give your time to that? As followers of Jesus, let's choose compassion over convenience. Let's return back to our super awkward dinner party. And uh, after verse 6, Jesus breaks the silence with, with yet another observation about his hosts. See, self-righteousness reveals itself in another way. Self-righteousness reveals itself when we're more concerned with honor than humility. So you can imagine at this stage of the meal, people are, are, are now beginning to take their seats at the dinner table. But in those days, people actually didn't have a dinner table. They had these uh, reclining tables, which are kind of in a horseshoe shape, a little bit like how these uh, seats are, are laid out here. And, and so the, um, the host would often sit right at the apex, uh, like imagine that here, which, which would mean Bex here and this lady here would be the guests of honor. Okay, and, and then we go down the lines, and, and the, the, as we go down the lines, things get slightly less honorable until we hit David Choi. You know, <laughs> the worst seat possible. And, and so at this point, everyone's scrambling to get the best seats. They want to sit here or here. They definitely don't want to sit here. <laughs> no way. So they're rushing to get the best seats. They want to be seen as having high status, of being most important. And that's when Jesus observed something. Look at verse 7. When he noticed how the guests pitched the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. And then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. I was at a wedding yesterday. I was taking a wedding, uh, uh, someone in our church. And um, there's that moment of trepidation, isn't there? 
um, when, uh, after the wedding, when, when, when everyone looks at the seating plan um, for, for who's going to sit next to whom, what you're really hoping to discover is that you're on the fun table. You know the fun table? They're the one which is laughing all the time. And, and everyone wants to be on that table. It's usually the table with all the uni mates, and they're all together, and it's a great reunion. You want to be on that table, right? But as you look through the list, what you're hoping you're not going to see is that you're sat next to old Aunt Maud. And, and you just kind of, you can imagine that, oh, this might not be as fun. I wish I was on that table over there. So imagine, as you, as you look at the seating plan, imagine you, you get out your Sharpie, and you sort of edit it. And um, you, um, but, but for you, the fun table isn't good enough. So what you do, you scrub out the name of the mother of the bride off on the top table, move her out, and then you put your name there, and, and then you sit the mother of bride next to Aunt Maud. <laughs> and you think, brilliant, top table, honorable. Well, what do you think is going to happen? It won't be long before the biggest, burliest usher, best man, sort of gently escorts you down from the top table, past the fun table, past Aunt Maud's table, and now you're in the worst place of all. And you know what that is at a wedding, don't you? The kids' table. <laughs> now you're sat with the children. Oh, that would be the worst. And believe me, it is the worst. I'm often sat there with mine. You know one wants to be there. So what is Jesus' point in this parable? Is he just giving us some top tips how, about how to behave at weddings? No. I think there's probably more going on here. No, I think Jesus is preparing us for the great, great wedding feast to come, that eternal banquet which we heard about in our first reading. He wants us to enjoy that banquet. And so his point here is very simple. Those driven now by a desire to honor themselves will find themselves humbled on that last day. See, the Pharisees here were clambering over one another for the seats of honor. And Jesus says, it's a pathetic sight. It is a pathetic sight, isn't it? But again, we can do the same things, can't we? We just do it in a slightly more sophisticated way. Um, we find ourselves subtly promoting ourselves in conversation. Uh, we use social media to let people know what we have, or where we've been, or who we rub shoulders with. We find ourselves harboring bitterness against those who we perceive to be in better positions than us as we look up the table or we look up the, the ranks in our business. And then we, we push down those who we think are, are less worthy than us in order to elevate ourselves. It's almost as if we've entirely forgotten God's grace. It's as if we think we deserve to have everything we have because we've earned it. See, social self-righteousness reveals spiritual self-righteousness. And it's really ugly, isn't it? It's really ugly. But a very beautiful alternative is found in verse 10. Look at verse 10. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
the wonderful thing here, the most beautiful thing here, is how the Lord Jesus Christ himself embodies this teaching. Because surely, above all, Jesus is the most honored guest, right? He is the eternal Son of God. And, and yet, what did he do? He, he entered our world, and he took the very lowest place. He sat with those without status and without honor. Jesus went and sat with the children. He did. In fact, he went further than that. He went to the cross. And there he willingly humbled himself to death so that arrogant and proud people like you and me, so that we can be honored to God's table. Friends, the more, the more that we are awed by this truth, that by nature we're not worthy, that, that, that we're, we're not deserving, uh, that we've been given this exalted status free by grace, the, the more that captures our hearts, the more we'll be liberated from competing with others for power and status and honor. Jesus came to free us from all of that. You don't need to play that game. You definitely don't need to play it at church. So we're back at the dinner party, which somehow keeps on limping on. Um, but it's about to get worse. Because Jesus makes a third observation about his hosts. It seems they're more concerned with social leverage than love. So as Jesus looks around the room at the, the other guests at the occasion, he notices there's something in common about everyone here. It seems they're all powerful, and they're all influential. And perhaps it would have been the, the local equivalent of the MP, or the mayor, or maybe the bishop, or something like that. A very impressive guest list. And Jesus looks around and goes, huh, that reveals something, doesn't it? Just look at verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, presumably in full hearing of everyone else, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. Jesus notices that this host's impressive guest list was actually rather self serving. Either he was only interested in looking after people who were like him, his friends or his family, or he was interested in leveraging people who could help him, wealthy people, powerful people, his rich neighbors. In other words, he was using hospitality to bolster his position within the community. This meal was a kind of status symbol. Look who I've got to come along to my house. Aren't I great? But again, maybe you see something of yourself here. Because we all find it easier, don't we, to love those who love us. And naturally, we want to hang out with those who are like us. And I think that's why in our workplaces and in our sports teams, we see cliques. I think that's, that's why, sadly, even in churches, over time, you, you start to see churches curve in on themselves. 
not showing it so much interest in, in newcomers, or, or, and everyone's just sticking with those you, whom you already know. It can happen, can't it? Sadly, over time, you see churches breaking into factions, into, into different social groups, different backgrounds, different nationalities. Again, this form of social self-righteousness can reveal spiritual self-righteousness. Because here's the thing, if, if I think I am important, if I think I am deserving, if I think I am worthy, then I'm only going to love people whom I think are important and worthy. But, but is that why God loved us? Because we deserved it? Because we could pay him back? No, look at verse 13. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they can't repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. See, Jesus here deliberately selects the list of people who are seen to be and known to be outcasts. Uh, the poor were excluded from society. They're, they're a drain on resources. You don't want them at your wedding feast, do you? Uh, the crippled, the lame, the blind, they were excluded from, from temple worship. Uh, no access to God for them. God doesn't want those sort of people, surely. Jesus said, no, invite them. I want them at my wedding feast. And I'm glad he does. Because you know what, by nature, that's me. I am spiritually poor. I'm incapable of paying God back for anything that he's done to me. Oh, by nature, I'm spiritually crippled. I'm, I'm lame. I'm, I'm powerless to, to save myself. By nature, I'm spiritually blind. Left to my own devices, I'll just be left fumbling in the dark. And yet to me, and to you, I should say, to you, if you would own that description of yourself, to us has been extended the most gracious invitation, the most wonderful invitation ever, to eat with God at the heavenly banquet. I hope you, you've grasped this now. Who you think you are directly impacts who you are willing to relate to. If you think you're a someone, you're only ever going to be interested in other someones. But if you recognize that, but by God's grace, you're a no one, well, you'll be willing to love anyone. About 20 years ago, I think it was my second year of university or something like that, I, I was invited to a friend's New Year's Eve party. And I only realized after she had invited me and after I said yes, that this wasn't an ordinary New Year's Eve party. Her dad ran Sandringham Estate, uh, the Queen's estate. And I've somehow managed to wangle away uh, into this really quite highfalutin party. And I, after I discovered where it was, I felt really nervous about going. Um, at the time, the only suit I had was the suit my mum bought me when I was 16 years old. She said to me, you'll grow into it. No, never did. 
So then I was like, I rocked up, at the, you know, ringing on the enormous knocker of this mansion and um, wearing my Charlie Chaplin uh, suit, um, looking a complete shabby mess. And, um, and I was really, I was full of trepidation. I did not belong here. I really did not belong here. But as I sort of, I walked in, I got a glass of champagne and what, are they, what do you call those things where you get a little canapé? A Bellini? Bellini? Yeah, a Bellini with a little dill on top. And I was handing one of those. And, Hi. and, and, and sure enough, I, I got to meet some of my friends' friends. And there are a lot of high society people there. Hello, hello, how, how do you do? Very nice to meet you. And uh, hi, hi. It was, but what struck me, wasn't, it wasn't just high society friends there. And it wasn't just sort of like middle society, <laughs> people like me. But my friend had also invited her electrician, uh, her plumber, um, and um, all of her, her Bible study group, which at that time met on a South London estate. And it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. And, and I remember some of her posh friends couldn't make any sense of it. I remember overhearing one of them said, I just talked to a hair electrician. What's a hair electrician doing here? <laughs> but, but here was a girl who had understood the gospel. She loved Jesus. And so, yeah, she was willing to throw open the gates and invite anyone. Can I ask you, who do you show hospitality to? I guess there's a challenge here if, the, if we never invite anyone. I think there's a challenge here if we only invite people like us. I think there's a challenge here if we only invite people who can reciprocate. Uh, what do I mean by hospitality? You might be thinking three-course meal, but starting with Bellinis, then a starter, then a thing, then a thing. I'm not meaning that, but I'm not meaning hamstered hospitality. I'm meaning normal people, hospitality. When Hannah and I have people over a meal, we have about four dishes, which we just do on a cycle. Easy dishes, wang it in the oven, out it comes, beans on toast, whatever it is. Hospitality doesn't need to be highfalutin. It can just be a very simple meal. Because the aim is not to impress. The aim is to love. And by the way, a lot of the, uh, I've discovered over the years, a big reason why people don't do hospitality is because they think before they can have people over, their place must be immaculate. It must be really tidy, beautiful, because you've got to impress. It doesn't. Our house is never clean. No, it is clean. Sorry. Our house is never tidy. Our house is never tidy. Sorry, Hannah, I'm throwing you under the bus here, aren't I? Our house is never immaculate. It, it can't be with, with four children. But, but by inviting people into your home, you're inviting them not to see the version of, of, them, of yourself that you want them to see. You're inviting them to see you as you are. You're inviting people to love you as you are, and you want to love them as you are. And I don't know if, if this is still the culture here, but, but wouldn't it be wonderful if you used your Sabbath day today, the Sunday, um, used your Sabbath lunch to invite others around uh, to love them, it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be impressive. Just love them in. Because what, what are we seeing in this passage here? Jesus is simply saying, come dine with me. And as followers of Jesus, we, we should extend the same invitation to anyone. Come dine with me. Shall I pray?
Father God, we praise you for the generous invitation that you've extended to even us. Spiritually poor, spiritually crippled, spiritually blind. And I pray, Father, that having received your grace, we'll be willing to extend grace and compassion far more broadly than we might have done before. Father, would your word today, by your spirit, take root in our hearts? Would it help us change the way in which we use our diaries, how we use our time, and who we might consider inviting into our lives and into our homes? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.